Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm I'm pretty good. I have had a, a little bit of a strange uh, episode again with my right arm. I think I'm being bitten by something in my sleep. Listeners may remember that I got a very, very intense spider bite when I was staying at the strange sort of old Route 66 motel before I could move into my house. And uh, it it really looked as bad as uh, a very intense spider bite I got in Borneo at one point. Uh, But that healed up. That was fine. And then I got one on the outside of my right arm. And I think that might have been an immature paper wasp. I did manage to find the the sort of remains of the the body beside the bed, and there's no insects in the house. It's very sort of you know pristine, relatively speaking. But my arm, my God, it's it really swole up really intensely, and I was at my chess club the other night, and I I showed the arm and people go look you you've got to you've got to go to the doctor you know we know you don't like doing that but you need to so i've been on antibiotics and steroids and it's calming down now finally but it's been four days so yeah that's my report it's uh it's weird it's weird you can go years and not get a a real serious insect bite infection thing happening and uh, I, I've I've had a kind of pattern of them. I'm not sure what to make of it. Yeah, I got something on the inside of my leg, way too close to my penis for comfort, about oh three months ago, and it uh, yeah it swelled up and turned black, but oh dear, it, it went away. Now it's a scar. <laughs> Thank so. you. But you've got more insects in Oklahoma. You've got mosquitoes and no yeah. and all. I mean, there are some, you know, serious insects here, but you don't really see them. You know, you've got to go looking, fortunately, for scorpions. I'm not saying there are, you know, there are none around, but, uh, you know, those are also the kind of things that you know when they happen. You know, you know it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that your uh, your wound has healed. Yeah, oh, dear. yeah, I'm glad that my wound didn't happen on my penis. But the um, the thing about Oklahoma is that you just sort of get used to the idea that there are bugs everywhere. This new house that we've moved into, I have seen earwigs, stink bugs, mosquitoes, flies. And a few house spiders and one brown recluse, as a matter of oh, fact. Oh dear, yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. But you know good. what can what can you really do? I don't know how they how they get in. It's nothing like the house I lived in uh, when we first started recording this podcast. You'll remember the abandoned house. I think had dead animals or something in it, and the flies that we had in that other house was just biblical. It was freaking crazy. You had a salt shotgun for those, didn't you? I did. (laughs) I did. I had a salt shotgun, and it was called a salt gun, like a salt. But uh, here I've only seen about three flies in the two months that I've lived here, so the the ratio is way down, and I'm I'm happy about that. But again, you know, flies and, and tornadoes. Yesterday I woke up, and I knew 
a tornado was coming. Uh, the Weather Channel didn't have any indication of it. It was cloudy, but not particularly stormy. But I just knew you could go outside and smell the air. And I, I said, a tornado is coming. Um, it didn't come close to us. It actually hit about two miles from where my mother lives. She's okay. Um, Thank goodness. But I, I do think that it's funny if you, if you live in the Great Plains, Oklahoma, North Texas, Kansas, this sort of area, you just start to be able to tell. You just yeah. wake up one morning and say, oh, well, everybody strap in because... The cyclones coming. Yep. No, I, I hear you. I th- and I, I, you, you bring a lot of experience to that. And I think you're probably taking in a lot of sensory information that is, is there for, uh, you know, all sorts of creatures to, uh, to process. It's just that some humans may not be quite as alert as others. But, uh, oh, dear. Well, I'm glad that, uh, well, it... Uh, the uh, the bug bite missed your penis. The tornado missed your house. You've, you're you're living a charmed life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's you know when you put it that way. We had Gus's first birthday party. It was great. My mother. Oh yes, happy birthday! Mother. I. I my mom and my sister both wanted to sort of. I, I'm I'm the one who's remiss. They they were really on top of that. Well, thank you to you and thank you to them. Uh, yeah, Stacy Rios's parents uh, came. My parents came. My father showed up briefly, but he showed up. Um, and Gus got a really cool, I know you've seen them, these kids' cars, like a little, a little van. They're usually McDonald's colors, red and yellow. Right. Except Gus's is made up to look like a dinosaur, so it's green. Fantastic! Yeah, he loves it. I've got a really cool picture of him. I'll send to you after we're done recording of him with his arm leaning out the window, <laughs> giving a extremely James Dean look. And I just thought I have the coolest son in the world. Wow, that's fantastic! That's fantastic! Mm-hmm. Well, I'm still waiting for you to get your matching suit and bucket cap. Yeah. Yeah, to go so with him. Like, I mean, he's probably grown out of that it. one, but uh, yeah, you, you need to sort of, I think, uh, do a bit of twinning, as the Kardashians say, you know, yeah. a bit of twinning. Yeah, we've got to keep our mentions of the Kardashians on this program to a bare minimum. I think that was the <laughs> one that was the one for the month. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, you have given me five words to choose two to fit into our conversation last week i did bravado Mm -hmm. and a tricky one niggling yeah you you snuck that in late that was beautiful yeah when you when you gave me that one i knew i had to do it because especially in our climate right now the first syllable of that word makes every white person take a sharp intake of breath (gasps) right so the 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 troll in me the guy who likes to have fun the trickster i said there's no way this podcast is ending without me saying niggling 
and you did it really, really well. I'm glad you took on that challenge. You're, you're, I, you know, everyone appreciates that spirit of, of adventure and boldness, and, you know, a, a kind of nice sort of uh, combativeness of being able to, you know, get up for the game. This is what we want people to feel. You know, everyone's so downtrodden. Certainly, a lot of younger people are. They're just, you know, so afraid to be called on. You know, you just think, oh dear. You know, this has been a fan- <laughs> this has been a fantastic week. I won't go into all the details of it, but I've seen several communities of people who make a habit out of canceling people begin to autophagize. They begin to eat themselves. They begin to cancel each other. And it's so glorious to watch because you know it's going to happen right from the start when you get a bunch of people together who get sexual pleasure from making people grovel and beg. You know it's only a matter of time before they run out of targets and start doing it to each other. Yeah. It's so glorious to watch it happen. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's... Well, that, that could be the subject of a beautiful uh, reality TV show, you know, and then they turn. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Just call it canceled. Cancels. Perfect. People who are professional cancelers. I'm surprised we haven't seen any documentaries about this, but I got off track. Uh, you gave me those words. You've given me five words this time. I'll fit two in. In addition to the five words, part of my mental gymnastics imaginative challenge on this show is you give me a task a prompt every episode and i have a suspicion you have one for me this evening as well oh oh yes i do yes i do another imaginative challenge your last when you're always surprising and and coming up with some great things uh, I I, th- I thought last episodes was was just superb. This is a, a mixture of a corporate professional writing type of assignment, but also a, a social uh, online kind of assignment. You have been hired by a technology company that works with healthcare related products, and in this case. It's an online psychiatric psychological services product. And they have developed an app called Dr. Yumi. Okay, you, me, Dr. Yumi. And it's, uh, it's available to anyone to get a psychological diagnosis of uh, the deep problems that affect them probably mm-hmm. anxiety depression dissociation and just general spinelessness uh, but your first challenge and the first hurdle for users of this app uh, are three diagnostic questions okay so your task as a corporate copywriter content creator is to come up with three diagnostic questions that open up a channel of relationship with users, potential users, who will become hopefully addicted patients of the service, Mm. but to also ferret out some interesting information that maybe could be used in other, you know, somewhat dubious corporate ways. 
but questions that maybe maybe of the three questions there would be a difference in in tone and dimensionality across the three but things that might be they have to sound legitimate the kinds of things that a psychologist would ask mm -hmm. but they need to be unique they can't just be do you ever suffer from anxiety you know mm -hmm. uh you know, something, your own special David take on it. Three questions that reveal character, economic capability, perhaps, because that's important for, you know, if you want to build a business relationship, but also opening up channels of, of, of sharing, you know, and mm -hmm. maybe actually are truly psychologically helpful. There is that possibility, isn't there, that mm -hmm. uh, if anyone can come up with a question that maybe reveals some psychological depth of field, I think you are the one. All right. This reminds me of the opening scene of the film Blade Runner, mm -hmm. the Voigt-Kampf test. You're yep. walking in the desert and you see a turtle on its back, its legs kicking in the hot sun. That's that I'm making my own Voigt-Kampf test, basically. But it's got to sound... It's got to sound legit. It's got, I can't yeah. be talking to robots here. I gotta, it's got to pass the smell test. Yep. Yeah, okay. it's got to be more than pick out a picture of a seaplane. If you've seen those CAPTCHA. I kind of right. hate those stupid <laughs> things. But uh, um, and, and, and I think the, the magic of three is you get different levels of depth and detail to work with. You know? Yeah. All right. Well, okay. that is excellent. I'm looking forward to coming up with those. Got some stuff swirling around in the brain pan as we speak. Chris, what do you want to talk about this evening? Well, I had uh, a flashback, which, you know, we've been talking about the levels of coherence and, and kind of congruity between your thinking and, and values and, and mine, despite pretty significant age difference but I had a flashback that I, I think is is very uh, emblematic of, of my age group and just is simply not really something that you could have in 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 your uh, cloud file I suddenly recalled in real intense detail the time when not only were there only four to five television stations, but you couldn't press the pause button. You couldn't record, and therefore you certainly couldn't record while you weren't watching. If you got up to go to the bathroom or to go to the kitchen, you might miss something. You might miss something, and you would be dependent on other people that were watching with you maybe to fill you in. And if you were alone, you'd have just missed something. But it seems to me that ever since that time period, so many of the technology innovations and the offerings to consumers are about, well, don't miss anything. Don't miss anything. And I also caught uh, Mark uh, Bowerlane, um, who has written this uh, two books about, you know, the dumbest generation. And now the dumbest generation grows up. I referred to that in uh, 
an earlier podcast. I've been I've been checking him out. He's been out on the book tour um, front doing you know video interviews and podcasts and things. And he makes a mention of the early founders of, of some major platforms like Twitter and Facebook and a kind of conjoined promise to people that you'll never be alone. You'll never be alone. So I think there's something odd about being able to control time, to, to pause TV shows and movies, to never miss anything, and to never be alone. And I thought I would throw that out to you as a starting point for this show. I think that one thing that's interesting about this, and this might be a completely different direction than what you're intending, I think that the pause button and the rewind button have a severe effect on imagination. I was reading about a game developer named Hidetaka Miyazaki, who created these games that I'm a big fan of, that are noted for being extremely cryptic in terms of their narrative and and storytelling. And the reason why they're so cryptic is because he relates that he was a very lonely child and that when he was uh, growing up in rural Japan, his library had an English section full of fantasy books. And his English, being that he was a child, wasn't great. So he would pick these books up and he would read what he could, but a lot of stuff he didn't understand. But the fun for him came from filling in the blanks, from being able to create his own world around these narratives that he only at best half understood and i think that when you're talking about uh, television and the ability to pause it and the ability to rewind it the ability to put subtitles on so you're never missing a single word there's something going on where we're actually missing our ability to fill in those gaps and be comfortable with our interpretations of them that might not be the official interpretations I was thinking about this specifically because Gus has been watching Sesame Street and I show him the Sesame Streets from 1988 and 89 when I would have been watching them. And uh, there are songs and, and, and videos that I remember. I remember. And now that I'm an adult and I speak English fluently most of the time, now I understand what those songs are about. And it's the most fascinating thing in the world, though, to suddenly be transported back to 1990 or 1991. <laughs> and like, I thought this was about something completely different. But isn't that cool, right? Isn't that, isn't that a little bit of, um, you know, forcing you to do a little bit of the heavy lifting? I think the track that you're on with, this idea of not being able to miss anything ties into your uh, build a burger you know have everything put put out for you make sure that everything is to consumer specs uh make sure that nothing is missed you're getting every last dollar's worth of content out of your art and i appreciate that too but the first thing that comes to mind is the semi uh, retardation of imaginative faculties 
Well, I think that's that's at, at the heart of, of the problem. I couldn't agree more. And I think that it, it can be really boiled down to that, you know, the fear of missing something. Well, what is the mood of, of, of most people? It, they, they feel they are missing something. They have all this control. They have tremendous control over time, at least the illusion of it. And yet that hasn't done anything to, to make people feel more connected, more. They, they just are forever kind of uh, like the Red Queen, you know, in Alice in Wonderland, ever, you know, having to run faster to keep up and always feeling this sense of lack, this sense of uh, thirst, you know. Um, I absolutely love the idea of you raising Gus as if he's back in time, though. I think that's a potentially great story idea that mm -hmm. in many ways... You know, because for, for people my age, it goes along with things like ant farms and chemistry sets and stomp rockets and slingshots and tree houses and all these things that, that kids don't have today. And, uh, oh, I do. I, I, this is very apropos, but it's, uh, it's a little bit of a digression. Near my house are these two absolutely immaculate baseball diamonds. They're beautiful. They're not connected with any high school. They're just out kind of like, you know, city parks. And I had never seen anyone uh, playing on them. Uh, it turns out there is a, a big uh, uh, adult uh, softball convention on over this weekend. But back a few days, for the first time I was driving past and I saw some cars pull in. And it was, you know, mom's. Uh, some cute sporty looking moms with their kids and these kids with these huge duffel bags of mitts and things, you know, and they, they head down and it looked like a good group. It was boys and girls and, and the, both of the coaches were female. So all the social signs are there, but I'm, I'm sitting in the little bleachers watching these kids and they're, they're warming up playing catch. Mm -hmm. Well, as it turns out, they're not warming up to do anything else because they, they could barely barely function at playing catch <laughs> barely none of all but one of them uh one of the girls who was older these are like kids eight to twelve i would estimate she was the only one who was able to run in a straight line i'm not kidding <laughs> none of them none of them including her seemed at all really able to either jump for a high throw and about 80% of them were, or one in the dirt, you know, to lunge for it. They had no athleticism whatsoever. A, a sophomore at MIT could have easily designed a makeshift robot with more grace and coordination. It was <laughs> eye-opening. I was sitting there going, oh my God. You know, and here the parents are, well, they're cheering them on. The, at least the kids are outside in the fresh air and, and getting some kind of exercise. But I thought, you know, by that age in life, I'd say by eight years old, I would have logged in hundreds and hundreds of hours playing tag, which is one of the greatest games there will ever be, you know, and it teaches a lot on so many levels. And you could just see that this was completely missing, just basic coordination and the most elemental athleticism. 
And you think, well, if you don't have that at 10 years old, if you're not running and jumping well at 10, you're not going to be doing that at 20. You know, it's, it's no, the threshold is too low. So in addition, I think to just connect back to our whole theme, I think in addition to the tremendous imagination deficit that our new electronic control time, build your own burger consumer culture has created, it permeates the whole of life cycle. It permeates from mind to body, you know, uh, I think that the kids I was seeing would have corresponding issues with reading, comprehension, attention, uh, focus, and the ability to to execute conceptually as well as as physically. So it was it was kind of weird. It it did make me feel like an old fuddy duddy, and I I'm I'm getting used to that. I'm getting used to that now. I'm accepting that. Uh, yeah, my, my position is maybe ant farms, tree houses, slingshots, tag, hide and seek. All that stuff was, was really terrific and we need to bring it back. So maybe you should just, you know, keep keep Gus back in, you know, an earlier time. I love that. Well, there, there are these episodes. Number one, we saw an episode the other day that had, it was all about telephones and all the phones had cords on them. And it was teaching children when the phone rings, you go and pick it up, but don't go too far because the cord. And I thought, oh, that's great. That's great. The recent Sesame Streets have a character that is a smartphone named Smarty uh, that tells kids, if you don't know something, kids, what do we do? And then the chorus of children yells, we look it up. And I thought, oh no, we can't have this at all. We can't have, we can't just look everything up all the time. That's not going to work. But you go back, okay? You go back to the late 80s, the early 90s, and you still have, uh, by t- even by today's standards, you have uh, diverse and interesting cultural examinations. There was a, an episode that had, that did something on um, West African tribes right and you kind of saw them in all of their beautiful face painted semi nude cuz this is you know a kid show glory uh, which i don't think you would have today i think that modern liberals find africa to be extremely problematic for many reasons so they just pretend that it doesn't exist nigeria is not really a com- a country to the modern liberal it's just too problematic um But anyhow, my point is that with these episodes, these back-in-time episodes, you have, I think, my ideal picture of what diversity and inclusion looks like, which is that you can be kind to anybody, and your friend group can consist of anybody, but people are different, very different. That's something that I think the newer episodes of the show attempt to to subvert and go around by focusing on on normalizing things. You know, you're talking about these kids who can't run in a straight line. This is a a consequence of normalization of, of these things. It moved from that stereotypical Jeff Foxworthy joke about everybody getting a trophy now and what have you 
into this idea that, oh, you know, they're just being, they're just kids being kids. And I think that that, that substantive shift from, you know, because the whole idea of everybody gets a trophy is still kind of paying lip service to the idea that there might be a winner and a loser, but normalizing is something completely different, right? And I'm just totally against this idea of, of normalization of things for kids. You know, I, I want Gus to be fascinated by how different and weird and, you know, alternatively pathetic and inspiring people can be. <clears throat> and and also, you know, I think with that, to, uh, you know, to, to see a kind of, 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 of personal mythology, you know, to see the world around in that way. Uh, there was a, a kid who, you know, I mean, I remember the, the, the kid whose chemistry set blew up and he had these amazing scars that he'd show. And there were all the great Halloween disasters. But there was a kid who uh, got, uh, he was, he was the, the paper boy. Uh, but he was like a mythological paper boy. He, his hair had turned white early. And he got hit by a car. And he should have been just dead. But they rebuilt him like the $6 million man. And he had one of the first sort of... Uh, really specially designed bikes that he would all ride almost reclined and it was really haunting it was like <clears throat> seeing this weird insect come down the street you know mm -hmm. and i mean it wasn't he, he was never never messed with by anyone because he was seen to be you know kind of almost supernatural and he knew where everybody lived he had almost like this photographic memory for addresses. And you'd see him and you'd think, that's Lincoln, the paper boy, you know? Mm -hmm. And he had a real, you know, mythic, haunted sense of stature. And, you know, I don't even think that, that kids today now have a really coherent sense of their own neighborhood, you know, really, let alone, you know, having mythic figures within it. So hopefully, guess we'll get and and if you keep supporting that, you know, I think that's crucial to the kind of vision that that we're talking about that that holds people's minds and hearts together as they get older, and uh, keeps them from the suburbs of the soul. You know, the suburbs of the soul is a great point. I was going to bring up the concept of wanderlust and the idea that people used to want to go out and explore and go into you know deep dark Africa. And the radical difference and unknowability of these people was part of the whole appeal. Now it's much more sightseeing. It's not it, sightseeing is a part of adventure, but it's not adventure in and of itself, right? Um, the idea of the closest I can come to are my friends, my neighbors who I met when I lived in my previous house who are missionaries who go to Papua New Guinea and some of the stories they would tell about you know how deep they are in country and how frightening that can be you don't really have that 
uh, once you live in the suburbs of the soul because you don't even if you get off your couch you're never off of your couch I mean there's Starbucks everywhere and it wasn't so long ago that we had some really fabulous models of eccentrics going out to adventure in the world. I've been reading this great book called The Lost Species, which is about interesting discoveries in, in the world's great biology collections uh, of things that might have gone miss, missing because uh, no one that we just don't have the uh, the scientific uh, labor power to to review all the stuff, but. I uh, was reminded of the story of Lionel Walter Rothschild, Lord Rothschild, the second Baron Rothschild. What a wonderful figure of the 19th century. Super, super wealthy, but absolutely obsessed with natural history. He sponsored many expeditions to the wildest, strangest parts of the world. He went on them himself. He was out there doing it. He wasn't like Johnny Depp or Will Smith just, you know, egotistically blowing their fortunes and self-destructing in front of us. No, no, no. We owe him a great debt for the, the amount of collections. Just think about this. And, it, you know, he had money, of course, but he had the will and the spirit of adventure. 300,000 bird skins, 200,000 bird eggs over 2 million butterflies, 30,000 beetles, and the finest collection of mammals, reptiles, amphibians, and fish of his day. He rode in a, uh, and drove himself in a horse carriage to Buckingham Palace, driven by zebras to prove that they could be trained. He was out training zebras himself. You know, we need that kind of uh, wonderful, crazed, adventurous geniuses. And if they have some money, so so much the better. Uh, and because of this book, I also went back to read some of Teddy Roosevelt's uh, stuff of, of traveling through Brazil. And for whatever people think about Teddy Roosevelt... He was a hell of a good writer. He has a lot. He had a lot more courage than many people. And you are right with him. You are right with him uh, when he catches a simply enormous ancient catfish-like creature, which has completely swallowed and consumed a very rare kind of monkey i mean that's amazing and the my favorite anecdote about teddy roosevelt involves him uh overcoming his asthma yeah he was severely asthmatic as a child they didn't think that he was going to make it on several occasions and one day he said i'm going to build my body and he did where's that at all these you know, fat exactly. Where's children, that like all all these blubbery kids who want to play Minecraft all day. Where's where's that? I like I'm going to beat this. I, I'll never forget working at Safeway as a checker, and there there would be this woman who would come in, and she was in her maybe mid forties, early fifties. 
and she was severely allergic to peanuts. So much so that her food wasn't allowed to touch the conveyor belt because peanuts might have touched it, and if that was the case, she would go into shock and die. Okay, so at at some points during this show, I say things that set people off, and whenever I talk about this, this is one of those things. So you've been warned, folks. You've been warned. (laughs) I gotta wonder, is it really that bad? Is it really... There's nothing you can do? You'll you'll die if you... You know, in planes, they don't serve peanuts. When I was a kid, they did serve peanuts, but they don't anymore. Because some people... I mean, were these people just dying on planes before? And they were just carting them off? EMTs get on the plane and just roll them off and take them away? Is this really a thing? I, I don't know. I don't it's know. like lactose intolerance and, and gluten and all. Chris, I don't know is either. It, is it real? Is it real? Or, and here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. I think that the psychosomatic illnesses that people put them through, themselves through. This was my big point about COVID, not to reopen that can of worms. But that was my big point of it. Not that it doesn't exist. Not that peanut allergies don't exist. But the degree to which they affect people, I believe to be largely in, in their own heads, self-created. Because the mind is incredibly powerful, depending on what you put it to work doing. And it depends on whether you want to be Teddy Roosevelt or you want to be that lady with her everything wrapped in those little plastic bags that you'd use for vegetables. She'd put everything in those. She'd put a box of, um, what was it? I believe steel-cut oats, if I remember correctly, in one of those bags. Again, just to make sure by chance it didn't it didn't brush something that had been kissed by a peanut three hours ago. There's gotta be there's gotta be a healthy middle ground between those two things. You would think so. You would think so, wouldn't you? It's uh You don't sound you, you don't sound optimistic. Well, it reminds me a little bit of, I'm going to try to find this photo. This was uh, some of these, you know, I, I'm, I'm part of these sort of various research groups and stuff. And it's, it's a photo, it's a still shot from an ad. And it's a woman's face with a particular expression. And you get a choice. Uh, a, depression. B, Crohn's, uh, C, irritable bowel syndrome, D, vaginal itching. And uh, you have to uh, determine, you know, which it is. And and the expression is just absolutely classic. uh, I'll I'll try to find it and send it to you because it's just just a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, you wonder about all of these. Did, Did, really? I mean... Well, I mean, look at it more, even even more basically. I mean, you walk through a Walgreens or a CVS or whatever you got, and one of the key uh, categories is is sleep aids, you know. And there's 50 million, you know, new bed places everywhere, and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Well, think about what people were sleeping on, you know, not very long ago. <laughs> you know, how did they how did they handle it? You know, 
Well, okay. How about this? Smoking. There you go. I mean, so we can't smoke anywhere. I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. I do vape, but I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. And when I lived in Portland, people would do the performative cough. They, you know, they'd walk <laughs> by you outside. And <laughs> right. Um, okay, well, let's flash back to 1935. Or, the, you know what? I mean, we could really flash back to the 70s, even the 80s, if we wanted to. Hell, when I was of legal drinking age in Oklahoma, I would go to a bar where smoking was still allowed. You and I went to a bar in Vegas where we smoked cigarettes. Um, you can still do that here. I mean, wait, wait, it, yeah. it, it, we're, we're... I was walking in the Hard Rock Casino, uh, walking in the lobby, smoking a cigarette. I felt amazing doing that. But okay, so think back to a time when that was much more ubiquitous, right? Before people looked at you like you had a prolapsed anus. Think about... <laughs> Think about that. Okay, so back then, were people just suffering in silence about this? Were there people, or or does the fact that now we know that cigarettes cause emphysema and lung cancer and mouth cancer, does that knowledge now create these? these allergies that people pretend that like, oh, oh, I can smell the cigarettes on you. My head hurts. So it, then does that mean that if you were born 70 years ago, your head would just be hurting all the time? Is that what, is that what that means? Well, you know, there are people who, who would, you know, just say yes to that. Uh, and that this is, you know, an absolute unconditional good and unconditional progress. I think that you have to put it in, into a, a much larger context of design. Of Think of the cars. Think of the clothing that people wore. The, the poet Billy Collins, who I didn't think I liked him too much. I thought he was a little bit too much of a Norman Rockwell figure. But I... Um, I, I checked out his master class course and I, I came away sort of kind of liking him, certainly as a, as a teaching figure. But he has a poem about, uh, it's really an elegy to his father, but he puts it into a larger frame of when men wore hats. Mm-hmm. And it is a beautiful kind of inventory of a world in which, uh, well, you know, kids had ant farms and slingshots, men wore hats. Uh, you you didn't go to some sort of designer hair salon if you were male. You went to a barber shop, and there might be pictures of boxers on the wall. You know, um, it it's a, a whole frame of reference there. So I think that anyone who wants to talk about uh, well, smoking and alcohol are often get the sort of treatment. I mean. Have a watch of like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the, the movie with Burton and Taylor uh, and George Siegel and, and Sandra Day. Uh, it's not a very good uh, version of the play in my view, but check out the number of, of drinks they have. I mean, it's astounding. <laughs> it's astounding. Yes, and, drinking's uh, a big one too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah. really, I mean, there were people who... Uh, 
I mean, a, a three martini lunch was not out of the question for for some businessmen, you know. Think about co- like, cocaine in the eighties. Oh much my god! People were on. Oh I my mean, god! You know, absolutely. I mean, I remember. You know, that was like just absolutely unbelievable. So we kind of adjust around these things, but I do think that that you know, and, and cocaine in the eighties is a good example because I instantly. Uh, saw two or three people and uh, certainly the first male I, I saw had a ponytail you know mm-hmm. a certain kind of ponytail you know uh, right. and uh, they, there was you know certain jewelry and you know everything fits into a, a much bigger context we can't talk about just substances uh, you know it, it's part of a design fabric of reality that, you know, colors, you know, think of like the sixties and the seventies, every, I'm not sure what the color scheme for today is. It seems very muddled to me. I don't, I don't really see any kind of coherent design paradigm that's working, but I, I certainly think there was in the past, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think those, those kinds of habits and that entire enculturated uh, mindset fit into an overall ecosystem of behaviors and that is kind of gone and i think the i think today's notion that you can uh pick and choose those behaviors and kind of create your own design um that's the build your own burger trap you know that you know don't miss anything or make sure it's customized to your needs well, you'll, you'll end up missing everything, you know? That's it's going to yeah. be the problem. Yeah, yeah. You'll end up focusing too much on stuff that doesn't matter. Think about this. Think about how many times you've paused or rewound something. How much time is that? Rewinding well, in particular. I mean, how much how, a two-hour movie could become two and a half hours. If you, oh, no, I missed something. Is okay, make it up. Just guess. It doesn't matter. It's a movie. It's supposed to be fun. It's nobody's going to test you at the end of it. And geez, I wish you know. Wish you paid this much attention in school. You might, you might have actually gotten somewhere. People will pay attention to an episode of, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race like it's you know, like it's Muslims going to prayer or something. Well, it's very interesting, you know, the rewind sort of aspect, because there is some really tremendous data about this that people could pursue if they want to, that the, the, the great transitional moment in sports as a gigantic global entertainment endeavor was the instant replay. You take that away... And you've got something entirely different. I mean, that built the advertising platform that extended the programming that allowed control of, Mm -hmm. of, you know, what is really kind of a very difficult to to manage uh, television uh, project. It it really had just immense, immense impact. And to the point where if you are watching, you know, any kind of sport, like a football game or, or, you know, Major League Baseball, and something happens, you're guaranteed. You don't have to guess. 
you're guaranteed you're going to see an instant replay of it. Every you single play. on that. Doesn't yeah. matter what happened. I watch football on occasion when friends or family are watching it, and I see these instant replays. And you know, you'll see a ref make a controversial call, and they'll be able to get the camera in within three inches of the player's foot, and the refs will go to review the play. And I can't help but wonder what's the purpose of having a ref there again? If everything's on film, isn't that exactly. kind of the fun of it? Is that it's, exactly. it's a human with human error. They could make a bad call, but their word is final. That's just them's the breaks. That's the way it happens. A whole game could be blown on a bad call from a ref. That's what makes it exciting. You go to a bar with your buddy, <clears throat> you're watching the game, you see it, there's no instant replay. And you're drinking and you're arguing about it. And you each saw it a different way. Maybe he looked down to take a drink or went to go get a piss. He doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's drunk. So he's going to pretend like he knows what he's talking about. That's fun. You're self-mythologizing. You're creating your own narrative with the blank spots like this Japanese game director I mentioned a while back. Maybe I don't. I mean, I'll, maybe I'll take that into consideration because I'm a notorious re-reader, um, not just of passages that I think are particularly interesting, but I'm very picky about not missing a word when I'm reading. But I wonder if that's not just slowing me down. I mean, I'm a pretty smart guy. I can put things together. Maybe I'll just read, and if I can't immediately, what was that word? That wait, that sounded strange. Maybe I'll just rock with it. Maybe I'll just go with it. I don't think my comprehension will take a hit. Well, I think the, uh, the, the sports analogy is, is somewhat different in the sense that, I mean, you could look at it from the point of view of people who actually go to a stadium to watch a game. If you, if you follow their eyes, they're often looking at the jumbotron, you know? They're watching just a giant TV, and and I'm not sure what they're getting for their ticket price. You know the thrill of the uh, of the crowd environment, but oftentimes that can be you know what you want to avoid. You know it's much more fun to go to a sports bar. So I think there's there's a, a thing about I guess the difference between controlling time and customizing time and experience to meet your needs and the difference of wanting to build yourself into what you're reading, what you're watching, what you're experiencing in an imaginative sense, to share that authorship, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are two very different... I think we want to really encourage the latter and, and strongly discourage the former. So when you say that it's different than the reading example... It's because of the, can you say a little bit more about that? Because isn't that kind of similar to, to going back and, I mean, isn't restarting a paragraph similar to rewinding? Well, I suppose, you know, yes, it, it, it could be seen that way, but I think the psychological experience is very different. And I think that if you had like MRI imagery of the brain in that state, I think you'd see very different things going on. The, the reading uh, aspect is wanting to build that into your consciousness. I think the rewind of television is oftentimes to dispose of something 
to know the answer to, you know, oh, that's, a, you know, tick the box, another problem solved. Oh, that's what happened. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I think it has to do, I mean, the, where they would be similar is, in, and, and what is important is the degree of involvement of the individual, the intentionality, mm-hmm. the, the desire to engage. I mean, I can see, yeah, watching replays as being very important, uh, a part of study. You know, if that's what you're doing with it, you know, um, but that's very different than being handed an instant replay by a network, you know. Um, so I think it, it, it comes down to how much work uh, an individual does and with what intent mm-hmm. rather than just the automatic nature of it. Don't miss anything, you know. Right. Uh I mean, I, I think it's perfectly valid to, to really break things down. I mean, I've, I've gotten into a point where, you know, I, my German is terrible, but I've really just diagrammed out, you know, three consecutive sentences by Kafka just because mm-hmm. I wanted to see where did he pull the rug out? You know, where, how did the magic trick work? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's, I think, very, it's about the, the level of involvement, the commitment, and the intention of the individual. How fast do you read? English? Yes. Um, oh, pretty fast. Pretty fast. I, I don't read... Um, I mean, in, in, in the past, people sort of thought I was some sort of speed reader. Uh, I, don't, I don't do that so much anymore. It really depends entirely on, on what I'm reading. There are times where I will be able to really only process you know, a paragraph over maybe an hour because I'm making notes and I'm thinking about it. And, you know, it really depends so much on, um, on you know, the, the, the nature of the material. But I find, honestly, that I, I don't read uh, anywhere near what I used to on that kind of pure entertainment basis mm-hmm. that other people mm-hmm. do, you know, like mm-hmm. a Stephen King novel. And I just don't do that anymore. I, I, I read pretty serious things and I read much more slowly and that's where my enjoyment is I I really enjoy you know prose style I I enjoy the vocabulary I enjoy the structure Uh, and if it's really something that that important I am you know I'm making I'm making notes I mean in this book The Lost Species there's a beautiful line about God it's a it's a lungless pygmy salamander that is the subject. But the mm-hmm. description is a tiny, beautiful, charismatic creature. And I think that's lovely language. I think that's kind of, um, I don't know if it's surprising from a, a sort of herpetologist or, you know, someone from the sciences. They're quite capable of beautiful language. But I'm alive to that. And, and I think, oh, okay, you know, um, so it really, it, it depends very much on, on, on what I'm reading. But if I'm reading for fun, I still, well, say I'm reading Sherlock Holmes again for fun, because I, you know, I still want to do that course that we talked about in this, because I think it's, um, I'm just a huge Holmes fanatic. I'm, I'm not a first tier Holmesian, I'm, but I'm, I'm second tier. There are some grades officially in that regard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... I'll do the dialogue aloud, you know, mm. I'll, 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 I'll want to try my voice on it, you know? Yeah. Um, 
I've been doing that lately too. Yeah, I've been doing the out loud bit a lot lately as well, especially if it uh, is particular. Well, it's either particularly good or particularly bad. I like to say it out loud. The first because it would be beautiful and the second because it would be funny. But yeah, I've been doing that a lot lately too. But I've also found that I've been uh, reading a lot faster lately, probably because I've been reading more. Uh, I've been able to sort of take entire sentences at a glance um, where I think because of my profession as a proofreader and editor, I, when I'm in that mode, I'm reading word by word because I'm specifically looking, of course, for typos. And, you know, you'll miss all kinds of typos if you're reading fast enough. Um, but yeah, I've been reading some books for, uh, for fun and for also enrichment. And I've just noticed that I've been picking up. So I was curious about, I know you're very well read, so I was curious about your reading speed. Um, it's changed a lot is the answer. I mean, I, I was a real semantic chunker, as I call it, of mm-hmm. processing in a pretty big sections pretty fast. And I was, uh, you know, kind of openly manic, you know, um, just consuming, you know, stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I just, there are a lot of reasons why I don't do that so much anymore. Okay. You want to hear my questions? I do. We're ready. Okay. Dr. You, me. Dr. You, me. <clears throat> the first question. Your depression is sitting across from you. What does he look like? What does he want? Of course, with that, you can substitute anxiety for depression if you want to. I love that as an opening start. Okay. Second question. I want you to picture your worst enemy. Get a good feel for who they are in your mind's eye. They're in front of you on the street, dying. They're bleeding out. How do you feel? Why? And the third, describe yourself using only corporate brands. I think that's a fabulous assortment. That's a beautiful three-pack. Very, very nicely done. There's a, there are three different registers or dimensions. And for people listening, when I talk about dimensionality, I mean, think of it in, in like a shooting gallery sense where you've got a linear sort of thing of ducks going, but then behind that, you've got another level. And behind that, you've got another level. So there's a dimensionality to it that changes. And, and it makes us think about, well, are these all the same size? Are they all the same conceptual uh, weight and depth? And no, they're not. And, and they give us that sense of triangulation and a little bit of... of the, the dimensional references to sort of really gauge what's going on. This is why we need to break from linear thought and, and to have that sort of dimensionality because then we, we start to get some different lights and angles and shadows. And I think that was really well done. And I wouldn't have, uh, I didn't think those were in any way obsequious questions or, uh, you know, yeah. or convoluted bizarre questions. They, they right. I like. I, they put you, I love that idea of, you know, you're sitting across from your depression. Fantastic. 
You're putting you know people right into a visual, dimensional, physical frame. And I like that end line of, of you know, describe yourself. People love to describe themselves. Uh, and they're also afraid to do that. But then you give that nice out of corporate brands. I thought that was really lovely. Lovely. Cool. Great. I'm glad to hear that. I think yeah, you can sell that. I think so, too. <laughs> I think so, too. I think, I think, think they're sell good. that. I think they're good questions, yeah. So, oh, I'm glad you like them. Uh, I had fun coming up with them. Do we have tools, perhaps some tips today? Tools Yes, we have a tool. We have a tool. It's a sort of a two-part tool. The first part of it is, and this kind of links our our math-based thing. I I, I kind of worked through that, I think, and we're going to go ahead back to uh, language concept-based tools. But I would like to make the case that um, there's a lot to be said for red-winged blackbirds. And by that, I mean something very, very clear and direct. If you see a red-winged blackbird, your first thought is, that's a red-winged blackbird. You know, And sometimes we need to have some things that are really, really clear and straightforward. But I may have mentioned this before, but I, I want to actually read the section from the textbook, because I think it's something that is often overlooked. This is the M&M principle, and M&M I mean the the candies. Take an ordinary package of plain M&Ms and spill them out on a tabletop. On the one hand, you have a rainbow of colors. On the other, you have the exact same confection. No difference whatsoever in internal composition or chemistry. When blindfolded, people do very, very poorly at correctly identifying the color of the candy. The greater the differences in candy that you introduce to someone blindfolded, size, shape, flavor, and actual ingredients, the more accuracy of identification rises. Think about that. And I think that's a good tool for us to remember today because I think we are often confronted with notions of diversity and variety. Uh, David and I have talked a lot about false variety in terms of the consumer offer and choices and options and, you know, all these wonderful things. Well, are those real? Are those substantive differences in variety, choice, option? I think oftentimes they're not. I think that that long, long, long ago that consumer products began to take on a homogenous quality. And the great advertising guru, uh, one of the major figures of the 60s and 70s, David Ogilvy, said the whole point of advertising is that most products are the same. And he cited several cigarettes and alcohol would be, you know, top of the list. Uh, So think about that. Think about in terms of more substantive ways to interrogate difference, variety, options. You know, it's so easy to fall in line with a very, very superficial idea, which then creates enormous category problems almost immediately thereafter. 
So that's a tool. Okay. And uh, the tip. Uh, well, I was thinking about Earth Day the other day. I was thinking about we had Black History Month, we had Women's History Month, and we had Earth Day, which kind mm-hmm. of concerned me. But um, so I've been reading uh, uh, some of these wonderful biology books and. Uh, some of Darwin's lost notebooks have been found, by the way. But I was thinking about the curious episode of P.T. Barnum, who is perhaps one of the most important figures of the American 19th century. I think he's one of the few people who's still very much alive today. I think his spirit pervades uh, entertainment, consumerism, uh, in so many good and questionable ways he's just a, a huge figure if, if he hadn't come along we would have had to have invented him somehow he was just too important but even he was fooled in trying to buy a sacred white elephant from India hmm. even he got bamboozled He's one of the people who might have given us the word bamboozle. So the clever carny man, the guy who invented that wonderful saying, this way to the egress. Does anyone know that story? It's fabulous. He had such, such a crowd at the American Museum in New York City that he had to keep people moving. So he put up a sign, this way to the egress. And everyone goes, oh, let's go see the egress. Let's go see the egress. Worth checking episode seven, I believe, titled This This Way to the Egress. Yeah. Worth going back. Sorry to interrupt. Just had to throw that. No, but so even P.T. Barnum could get fooled about a white elephant. And there's quite an interesting story about, and I think people understand that the term white elephant and how that's been made a colloquial uh, phrase for something that, that isn't worth what the purchase price is and something that will, uh, you know, is, is just a burden, uh, whether it be a house that won't sell or a car or, or a real white elephant uh, that you might put on, mm. you know, a table. Mm. Um, but the point is, I think that, you know, we're all so keen and, and thinking that we're, we're smart. We want to think we're smart. And that we don't get fooled and that we don't fall for things. And, you know, I, I, I don't think that's really true. I think there are so many scams and things that we, we, we're falling for them all the time. And sometimes we want to. Yes. And I think that sometimes our greatest strengths can also be our weaknesses. And we should just be a little bit more forgiving of ourselves. If P.T. Barnum could get fooled in any way, mm-hmm. uh, well, so can we. Excellent. I love that. It's so true, too. A little bit of humility goes a long way. Humility and self, uh, the, the ability to forgive yourself, right? To not, just to not put too much stock in getting bamboozled. Yeah. It's just kind of the cost of doing business. There's a great scene in the, one of my favorite shows of all time. It's called The Wire. And oh, I love that, too. Yeah. The um, Stringer Bell, the uber cool um what's that guy's name idris elba plays him right and he's this badass gangster from baltimore who has risen to the absolute top of the crab barrel in the baltimore 
drug trade. And he decides that he wants to go legit. And he's making connections with politicians. And he's talking to real estate developers. He's going to put his money into some new buildings. And he's told at one point, and this is the beginning of his downfall, because his street code way of thinking won't let him be rolled like this, but he's told that he has to give a donation of $50,000 to a local politician to make sure that the right palms are greased and that his, his permit goes through for these buildings. So he does it. He gives the politician the money, and he's smarmy, right? He's just this awful, great character. The actor who plays him is fantastic. He gives the guy his money, and lo and behold, it doesn't go through anyway because the politician had no intention of signing those permits because there's a conflict of interest, and one of his buddies is going to build there and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that sets about his downfall. But everybody is telling him while he's going crazy he just got rolled for 50,000 bucks and everybody's telling him oh yeah he got you to he gets everybody he get and you know what and he'll get you next time because you have to do it whether he decides to or not is really a coin toss we can't tell you if he's going to go one way or the other but you have to you have to pay him you have to render under unto caesar what is caesar's so he's getting his 50k every time yes or no and uh, that always stuck with me, right? I'm not giving anybody 50000 I don't have $50,000 to give, but I thought that was just a really good lesson about... Yeah. You know, David Simon is showing these things, uh, and he's become a total raving uh, libtard on the internet, right? And he's, he's showing you the injustice of these things with some kind of, I think, naive belief that showing them will, will change things. But I think he's a great artist and a great writer and a great director. And I took a completely different lesson from that. Not that these kind of things can somehow be legislated or uh, empathized away, but that that's the way the cookie crumbles. That's the way life is you are going to get scammed you're gonna get bamboozled you're gonna you know have to pay this smarmy piece of shit fifty thousand dollars and then he's gonna run off with it take it easy on yourself don't be like stringer bell who ends up ends up dying he ends up getting killed (laughs) because of it (laughs) but yeah i think that's a good lesson just be you know try to uh it's gonna happen you know just at some point, just just be relaxed and and don't don't make a habit of it. Sure, that's the other side of the coin, right? I mean, it's also don't keep walking on the same rake. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, that's right. So, how about a dream? You got a dream? Do you have? Okay, a- I do, and and I have. Uh, I promised that I would uh, respond. I, I last episode I pitched to uh, to David and to listeners. Uh, the question of silent letters. And I will say that uh, my best information, this is in the textbook, and I believe this to be true, in statistical order, they are L, B, and G are the Mm -hmm. top three. Mm-hmm. There are others, obviously. K, you know, we know, we know. I mean, in fact, the idea of a silent letter is very peculiar. But those are the three that are statistically the most common. Okay. Okay. All so right. here's the dream. 
Now, this is a deep personal motif of mine. It, I, I really, I, I can't say why it, it occurs or recurs when it does, but it is based on, on a real mythic moment in my growing up. Uh, the star athlete, when I was 12 and 13, uh, was kind of my hero and my nemesis. And between the summer between 7th and 8th grade, I lifted weights. I ran three miles every morning. I just, it was just everything I could do to lose my baby fat and become the best possible athlete that I could because I wanted to be uh, a running back. He was the key halfback. And about 10 days before summer ended, he was riding uh, a motorcycle dirt bike with his little brother on the back and had a terrible accident. And his brother, little brother, died, and he lost half his right arm, really, essentially, the you know, all the way from the elbow down. Jesus. And it was, it was a very intense moment. He only lived a few houses away from me, but I had never been inside his house. And I remember a group of us went into his bedroom when he came back from the hospital. And here he was, you know, the, a major athlete in football, basketball and baseball and he looked so pale and and broken and I remember looking up at his bedroom walls and he had a poster of Raquel Welch from in a fur bikini from the you know prehistoric sort of movie of the time and there was uh, a Led Zeppelin uh, album on the wall and like I wasn't into that at all but it was this look at this, you know, to the private world of this fallen hero. Uh, the most significant white athlete in, in, in the school and in the whole sort of area. Mm-hmm. And his accident left a, a amazing hole for me. And I had a fantastic season. I, I, I was the, the starting running back. I scored 14 touchdowns. I, it changed my whole deal. And I remember seeing him... Uh, looking through the cyclone fence with his jersey on and the arm pinned up. Very, very intense, mythic moment. And I've written about it, and it's been published in sort of different forms. But I have, I am obsessed with, with him in a kind of deep dream sort of way. And I did actually find him in real life. He's a real estate agent. And uh, very distinctive looking and distinctive name, and I know I know where he is. I know mm-hmm. where he is, mm-hmm. and I often dream about going on a road trip to visit him. And the difference in the dreams is how open I am about who I am and what I'm really there for. And I'm not really sure what I'm there for. Does he remember me? What happened to him? What you know? Does he ever you know? It's just it's too complex for for work but in some of the dreams in the past i had i'd found the arm uh after the accident and i kept it and i i'd sort of grown it in a fish tank full of alcohol and stuff a lot of crazy crazy dreams over this is a big Mm -hmm. big motif 
But in this stream, I, I just decided, look, I'm getting old enough that I really want to touch base with someone from that really distant, formative past. I want to find out how their memory works. Does, does he remember anyone from, you know, our classes together? You know, just have a, an open chat. Mm-hmm. And as I'm driving from Vegas to the Bay Area, where he still is, I all of my plans to do a reasonable, you know, mature interview about memory and shared experience, all of it falls apart, and I obsess on stealing the prosthetic arm. I just, I can't help myself. And as I'm nearing the Bay Area, which always makes me very hyper and emotional, there's just so many weird memories and a lot of them not good. I'm getting so cranked up, I can barely keep focused driving. And I'm thinking about how am I going to get the arm? How am I, you know, and what are people, if anyone ever finds out, I mean, it's terrible. It's horrible to think about. And so I, I, I get to his office and he's expecting me because I had called I delayed the whole thing he doesn't know it's a trap that I'm going to steal this artificial arm and I get there in the dream and lo and behold I had this moment of thinking oh my god you know what if it's not a prosthetic arm hmm. you know what what if what, what would that mean have I hallucinated this whole thing? So I'm just to the point where I can barely function. The suspense is just driving me nuts. And I walk in, and he's got two prosthetic arms. Mm. And I wake up. 